Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On House of Cards, a recap show from On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. But you still put him to work. A man who's trying to recover, who's trying to get back his life. I've pulled in old White House hands, hacks, and policy wonks, and even the show's creator and cast to assess, giggle, and yes, occasionally sneer at one of our guiltiest pleasures. How can I help you, Doug? I can't go to rehab. It's not another hospital. Okay. I just, I can't, I can't do it. On House of Cards, not your average recap show. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media and also of this On House of Cards podcast. This one is devoted to episode nine, which we're calling Bad Doug Rising. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm joined by a very special guest for this episode, Michael Kelly, who plays Doug Stamper. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Many, many say that this is actually Doug's season, a man who has, through 13 episodes, gone full circle. So listeners to this podcast, at some point, if you haven't finished and you don't want to know what happens, dump out and I'll tell you when. So what's it like playing Doug? I mean, you've probably read the Vulture recaps about how he goes into his cave of sadness. That's his apartment, (laughs) the cave of... I like that. Uh, (laughs) That's good. There's so much, especially this season, going on with him. But but it's interesting because in the beginning, I remember Bo Willeman calling me. It was shortly after I I found out I I got the role. And Bo called and said, uh, he said, hey, I just wanted to say thank you. We're all so excited to have you. Let's talk a little bit about the character. And I was like, oh, great, yeah. And he was like, so really, all I want from you in season one is I just don't want you to, to emote. <laughs> and, that, and, that was, and I said, all right. And he was like, no, really, I want at the end of season one, I want everyone to go, what the fuck's going on with this guy? Um, but that really sort of set the, the foundation of the guy. You know, if you're told don't emote. You're so repressed. And it just sort of helped me with the research and whatnot create this, this guy. You auditioned, right? Yeah, that was a very long process. Originally, I went in for Hammerschmidt, who was the guy who ran the paper in season one. I just put myself on tape with one of the agents at my agency. And then they said, we want to bring him back for another character. So I went in for Lucas, who was Zoe's crush um, at the paper as well. So I went in for that. And they're like, okay, we like that. Have him come in for Russo. (laughs) So so then I went in for Russo, and they were like, great. They really like that. So uh, David Fincher eventually came to town with Lorraine Mayfield and, in a little room smaller than this one. And, uh, I don't and think so, it gets much smaller than this one, but okay. It actually was. And so uh, it was David Fincher, Lorraine Mayfield, myself, and I auditioned for Russo and Lucas. And we did about a 45-minute work session. David Fincher was just pacing the room, and Lorraine was reading opposite me, and David kept throwing out these notes. Do this. Okay, try it like that. Now let's do it like this. And over and over and over. It's like 45 minutes long, and I was like wow, this is amazing, you know, getting to work with David Fincher. And I, was, I just was, I was like, this is awesome. And he's like, great, okay, you can play uh, any of these guys, but I think I want you to read for someone else. And I was like, all right. And I'm thinking, about, I'd only read the first maybe 
two episodes, and I was like, well, who else is, who else is there? <laughs> Because remember, Stanford didn't really have a, a big beginning there. But David said, I'm, I want you to read for this other role. And I was like, okay. And he was like, no, not now. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, no. I said, I- I'm fine. I don't have anything else. He was like, I don't want to take up your whole day. And I was like, no, really, this is, I'm fine. I'd love to. And he's like, just put it on tape, and I'll, I promise you I'll watch it. And I was like, all right. So I put Stamper on tape with uh, Julie Schubert, another casting director on the show, on a Saturday. And they uh, they just sent off the tapes. And I was filming in New Orleans, the Now You See Me movie. And then my manager called one day. I was in New Orleans. I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what I was doing. And my manager gets on. He's like, hey, Doug. And I was like, oh, B. I was like, it's Michael. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I was calling for Doug Stamper. And I was like, oh, my God. I literally cried. I was standing right in the window. I was just like, oh, my God. I just freaked out. Yeah, so. You're such a, yeah. a mushy person, Michael <laughs> yeah. Kelly. <laughs> yes, I am, actually. In real life, I'm nothing like him. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously in this season, Doug is having a, a rough time. I, I want to play you a bit of tape from the first episode of our podcast on this subject. Yeah, well, no, actually, you should know, though, that in, while I was watching the first episode, um, my wife and daughter were in the next room, and they just kept complaining to me because they kept saying, there's this guy grunting throughout this whole show. Why is this person grunting? <laughs> Whenever, like, they walked by, there was a Doug scene, and Doug was in some sort of pain, and he was performing some sort of medical well, procedure. Well, when- <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That was Mark Leibovich in our first podcast. He was there with Bo Willimon, and he was referring to that MacGyver moment when yeah. you break your wrist and you gaffers tape it to a yeah. to a wooden spoon. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I when I read that, I was just like, "Oh my God, Bo! What is this? I was like, Are you kidding me?" And he's like, "It'll be great! It'll be great!" And I was like, "All right." <laughs> the greatest thing about this show, or certainly one of the greatest things, is Bo and our writing staff. He writes something, and you read it, and you're like, this is so crazy. But you know it's going to be cool. It's going to be different and crazy, but it's going to work. And and it does. But that was a crazy moment. (laughs) Now, I just wonder about process. Mm -hmm. How do you justify this act to yourself as Doug? The the actual taping of the Mm – see, it's funny. I actually do understand Doug. He has been – doing everything he can to get back to the White House. The whole season for him is like, I've got to get back to where I know I belong. So he has this opportunity. He's tried and he's tried and he's tried. He's finally going to get to go. And he breaks his arm. He's like, I'm going. I'm just going to do what I have to do. And, you know, everything that Stamper does is kind of, you know, sort of like that. You know, I'm going to do what I have to do uh, uh, by all means necessary. So it actually made sense. He's also fixated on Rachel and he has this project with Gavin, the Mm. hacker, who he has stored over at the FBI to track Rachel down. And this is something that has come up in podcast after podcast. Isn't Doug the real loose end for the Underwoods and not Rachel? Well, no. No, because he's a definition of loyalty. That is the one thing that the Underwoods, certainly Frank, knows Rachel is a loose end. Part of it is certainly Doug has other things with her. You know, I mean, in whatever weird world it was, there was love. You know, she was a mother to him. She was a lover to him. She was, I mean, not lover. They they did have sexual intercourse. There was a certain amount of money exchanging hands there. In her her mouth. I remember correctly. Um, The money, I meant. Uh, (laughs) Right. 
you know, she was so many things to him and so an addiction as he an said. addiction it's another addiction to him and we know how well he he is with addictions but she's a loose end and it's something that that has to be dealt with and so in this episode when we first see Doug he's meeting with Gavin who says he's found Rachel this is Jane Doe that's her that's her and she goes to the identity of a girl named Rebecca Sands the birthday is pretty close it's August 1990 then she died in 93 along with her whole family her social inactive about six months ago yeah, this doesn't say Rebecca Sands. It says Jane Doe. State troopers found her body in a ditch in an abandoned construction site outside of Tucson. There's no, there's no picture. There's, there's no proof of anything. It destroys him. I mean, first of all, I do want to say that Jimmy Simpson, the other act, that guy, I, I Gavin? love, yeah. love, love working with him. He's so talented. The guy can do the best comedy you've ever seen <laughs> and then go and play like this creepy, creepy guy. And that's coming from a guy who plays a creepy guy. Um, and, and Robin Wright was the director of, of this episode. And mm-hmm. she was, she's a dream to work with. She's, a, she's what you call a real actor's director. She gets in there. This, this scene in particular, I mean, I just, I loved, I loved filming it. It was just such a blast. So then Doug calls Seth using the emergency burner phone, right. <laughs> and says he needs to see Frank because his mother died, his yeah. mom died. This is code. Francis knows it. Like he said he, uh, later in the episode, I think it's in that episode, he says, I know his mother died 10 years ago. I was at the funeral. <laughs> um, so he knows that I have to talk to him immediately because I, I don't know that I can even trust Seth because I've said that to Seth before in the previous episodes. I've said, I need to talk to him. It's an emergency. And I don't get anything. But I know that if I say this, that that's, that's going to get me in the door. And then there's that other heavy symbolism here, which, as you say, in some ways, Rachel mm-hmm. was this kind of love and mother. Uh, there's a flashback where she's reading the Bible. Yeah. And Gavin mentions Tale of Two Cities, which she also read to you. Right, which was what I my mother used to read – Stamper's mother used to read to him, which is really interesting, you know, and it takes you in a whole other wormhole of (laughs) madness in his mind. Okay, so Doug has now totally fallen off the wagon. No more drinking from a syringe. (laughs) By the way, how did you feel when you saw that in the script the first time? Yeah, well, I, I, of course, went to Bo and I was like, I don't don't know if I, I get it, which is one of the only things I ever say to him when I have a question, I mean, which he then explains so simply to me <laughs> like he oh he said well here's the thing when doug takes that pill when he breaks his arm he goes to the doctor he takes the pill that's when he falls off the wagon it's not when he takes the shot with the prostitute through the syringe it's when he takes that pill he's immediately lost his 14 years he's off the wagon so he goes home and then he no longer has the pills he can't sleep it's been all night if he says i can i can do this i can self-medicate and that's why you see him draw the exact amount of bourbon into the syringe and then drink it that way. It's, it's his medication. But alcoholics, you know, they think they can just slip back in and have, well, I'll have one drink. It's a wedding. Or I'll have one shot through a syringe. Or whatever. Yeah, a, just one like, syringe shot. And he also eroticizes it. Yeah. He yeah. has the prostitute administer. Right. And, and the you, shot into his mouth and, and again, shades of Rachel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he hires a girl who looks just like Rachel. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a bizarre mind of Doug Stanford. 
So when you started reading the scene where, you know, he goes into this bar and he gets into this fight with these guys, did you expect it was going to be the old cliche where he gets the crap beat out of him and then he just sort of goes no. home? I was petrified when I read that scene. I was like, oh, man, that's that's a lot. That's, you know, I was scared to death, as as I was for most of this season, to be honest with you. <laughs> really? I was like, yo, I've never, been, I've never been so challenged in my life as an actor, uh, certainly. Um, so... Yeah, I was really scared, and then the, the scene when he goes back to his house after that is is even just crazy, <laughs> you know, and throwing up on the floor and then getting the paper towels and and you know, I remember Robin and Bo and I talking about it, just saying he just throws a couple paper towels down and uses his cane to sort of yeah half-ass wipe it, <laughs> push it around, you know, because he's obliterated at that point. I mean, he's he was drunk when he got home and then pours a full glass and just drinks it. Further proof you can't just have a five mils from a syringe <laughs> it's inevitably going to end up there and and interestingly enough i i i just want to say this I, how touched i was uh, how many people reached out to me via twitter or what have you and or old acquaintances and said you know as a former alcoholic i just want to say thank you because in our minds sometimes we glorify what it might be like if I could have another drink one day. You know that I, I'm better now. I'm 14, I'm 20, I'm 12, I'm five years sober. That's a long time. And they think, well, maybe I could again, you know. And many of these people have said to me, it just was so nice to see what really does happen, that you can't just have one drink, you know. And I was like, wow, if it can, if what I did touches some people, you know. And another person said it helped me realize that I needed help. You know, I was like, hmm. wow, it just it made you feel really good, you know, to know Does you could have an effect. Does it inspire you to greater depths of degradation? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who am I going to help next year? <laughs> uh, why do you think Doug at this point is heading down, down, down the way that he is? I think it's a, I think it's a culmination of everything, right? All he wants is his job back. He's not getting it. He needs to get Rachel, and he's not getting it. And then he finds out she's dead or possibly dead or what it might, whatever that might mean to him at the moment. And the, the alcoholism, it's just, he's just falling apart. Everything around him, like there's really nothing good in his life at this moment in, in episode nine. Nothing is happening right. He finally does get in to see Frank in the Oval Office and uh, shows him the file that Gavin gave him on Rachel. And Doug confesses. To Father yeah. Frank about the <laughs> fact that he's drunk, that Rachel meant a lot to him, that he's been working for Dunbar for Frank to prove he was still useful. How can I help you, Doug? I can't go to rehab. It's not another hospital. Okay. I just, I can't, I can't do it. We'll figure something out. I'm not Peter Russo. I won't go like he did. No, you won't. You're going to get better, Doug. I promise you that. Mm. He was so good in that scene. <laughs> but what did Doug mean? Uh, when when I said I'm not Peter Russo, it, it's exactly, you know, Francis knows exactly what he means. He's saying I, I you don't have to dispose of me. I'm not a loose end. And, and he's making a, a very... Bold statement at the same time saying, you know, not only am I not him, but he's telling him I'm not going to go like that. Like, I, I, I can get through this. We can get through this. 
uh, but I won't. That's not going to happen to me. For him, it's like, don't even think that because that's not, that's not me. There's something so chilling in this moment because Doug's self-abnegation, it's like if Frank did kill him, it would be Doug's failure, not right. Frank's. That's yeah. just beyond creepy. And, and you know, it, it, it is. But it, it's funny because so many people always ask me, you know, why is he so loyal to, to Francis? Stamper is an amazing chief of staff. That's the guy you want on your team. I've been to the correspondence dinner now two years, and I always have some politicians say to me, I could really use you in my office, you know. So he is a very efficient man, dedicated, loyal, all those things. But Francis is, I, in my opinion, just as loyal to him. I mean, he's coming to him. And like you said, he's a really big loose end right now. And he's completely off the rails. You know, he's drunk. He's working for Dunbar. So for him to say, you're going to get better and I'm going to take care of you, their relationship is, that's, 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 it's really strong. You are so magnificent in this part that I <laughs> don't want to mess with, with how you've worked this out. But I'll just say that as a viewer without the deep understanding you have, I see Frank as pure calculation. And if he had to put you in front of a train, <laughs> that meant you weren't as useful as he at first calculated you would be. You believe that when Frank makes this call, he actually means it. And he's not doing it just to rattle Heather Dunbar. Douglas came to us. And you should have turned him away if you had one ounce of decency. What's happened? Is he okay? You don't have the right to ask me that question. And if you do anything that endangers his health again, I swear to God, I will put you in your fucking grave. God, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I think he means it 100%. You might have to wait till I get better so I can put her in a grave. <laughs> so you can have me do it. You know, and maybe that's, maybe that's just me in my vision of Doug or what I want Doug to be to Francis. You know, who knows what could happen. This is On House of Cards. We'll hear more from Michael Kelly in just a minute. Was it hard for you to rest your head on Frank slash Kevin Spacey's lap? No, because, you know, I'm playing a man who's really at the bottom. He's truly at the bottom, and he doesn't have anyone in his life but Frank, if you think about it. Like, that's really the person in his life that he knows, loves, trusts. It was so easy because I was so exhausted from playing that, you know, from playing drunk and just it was so easy to put my head down. it felt so good <laughs> it was like every time I got to do the end of the scene I'd be like oh thank god I can put my head down and rest for a second I was having a, a debate I guess with Kimmy who produces this podcast your brother turns up mm. to take care of you Gary and uh, Kimmy says Frank sent him because we see Meacham there do you think Frank sent Gary back to take care of you? Well, he, he picks me up from his lap. He tells me to me, he's like, go home, stay with him until, we, until I figure something out. Because also, you know, like you said, I'm a liability at this point. So he says, <laughs> someone's going to be with him for 24 hours a day until we make sure that he's okay. Okay, listeners, this is the moment <laughs> when we move into uncharted 
territory if you're only up to episode nine. So we're going to say some really fascinating things, but you can't hear them now <laughs> unless you're prepared for spoilers. So bye. <laughs> bye. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The rest of you who are waiting here. Thanks for staying. <laughs> <laughs> so Gary comes, and he's clearly in a world that he doesn't belong in. He's not of Doug's world. He's got kids. He's happy with his job. His marriage seems great. He seems to show Doug that it's possible to be outside of the nexus of political power and be fulfilled. And he's trying to get Doug to see that. He asks him if he's ever considered settling down and having kids. Has it ever crossed my mind? Never? It's not for me. A life like that. I mean, a life like mine. It's not what I said. I know you've always felt that way. <sighs> Mortgage, nine to five, wife, two kids, dog. No. Just my freedom's important to me. <laughs> I'm freer than you are, pal. I stayed in Columbus because I liked it, not because anybody made me. I chose to put down roots. You've always been running from something. And at the end of the conversation, he says, what do you have? Frank yeah. Underwood? You don't even have that anymore. Yeah, it's pretty heavy. It's <clears throat> And Kelly, just another. <laughs> we're so blessed with the actors we, we get on the show. And what you see from Doug is that maybe he could live a life like this, you know? That side of Doug exists. He could do this. His heart just seems so stunted somehow. He, there's that moment of light when he has that moment with his physical therapist, and you see mm. that the, there's a possibility. Right. But he's so fragile. She's going, and he's crushed. Okay. You see that, the closest thing he's ever had to a relationship. With the, with the physical therapist, right? So you see that he can do that. Uh, you, you see him with the kids. You see okay, him with his brother. stop with the kids. Okay. <laughs> because you can see so much affection for these kids you don't even know. And that's because they're your kids, Michael Kelly. <laughs> and that's my worst acting job of the year right there. <laughs> it was so hard. It was, it was so hard. <laughs> my son, well, my son wanted nothing to do with it. He was just like screamed in every take or cried or <laughs> just literally wanted. My daughter was, was uh, she, she actually enjoyed it. And I thought Frank, she, uh, Frankie, your daughter Frankie. throws the newspaper at you in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Was that improvised? It was. It, well, <laughs> the way that it went on and on was uh, <laughs> she just kept, kept doing it. And, and like, you know, it was funny because I found myself being being Michael, being a dad, being a director, which I shouldn't be because we had a fantastic director, Agnieszka, for that episode. But you, you can't help yourself. They're, they're your kids, and all you want to do is take care of your kids, and you want your kids to do the best job they can possibly do. And then your your whole day is just going to shit with the with where they're like, where they the, the, the screaming. Okay, let's just try to get a take without him, you know, because my son was literally like ruining every take. <laughs> but, so you know, I said about how challenged I, I was this season, but that was probably the the most challenged I was in a different way. But to go back to where we were, I do feel blessed to have worked with my kids. That was a real treat. Uh, Clinton, when you hear this one day, Daddy loves you. Um, <laughs> uh, but you see those different moments with, with Doug, and you see that, you know what, hey, maybe this is a life that he could lead. But ultimately, by the end of the season, it's, no, man, I got to be 
I got to be Stamper. And and he and he's back, you know. And that, it just stamps. feels so good. <laughs> like when I when I, you know when I finally got there at the end of the season, everything we worked for, you know, it was all to get back to where I, I, me, him, whatever, you know, where it felt like it was back where he belonged. That's that's the whole arc of the season for him. And it is true that. You know, the old Frank magic, his his magical shiv that always found its target. He and his shiv are both much duller without you. He, the, <laughs> the coterie around him demand to be treated like human beings. He runs into trouble with Remy. Seth, who seemed uh, quite ruthless in the previous season, is suddenly just being a press secretary. Yeah. I mean... That's way too simple. <laughs> and, you know, without Doug, things just aren't going as well for him. Do you think that the absence of Doug has affected Frank's game? Uh, you know, selfishly, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think that, you know, that was one of the most interesting things about the season was that we saw these characters who we always saw twirling mustaches and kicking everyone's ass in their path uh, – fall down a little yes Doug by his side might have helped but you know it was interesting it's you become president and the exploration of now what you just become president and everything all of a sudden works out perfectly for you you know even in our crazy fantasy world none of their plans work out in fact there's only one character ultimately whose plans actually come to fruition took 13 episodes and the character himself was quite disabled but the fact is doug stamper <laughs> i'm like who 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 i'm like freddie <laughs> freddie's got a good gig now <laughs> he got claire's journal, journal which yeah. he didn't destroy which uh he uses to entice heather and gets him back into frank's office doug is the only one who pulls off his plans yeah i guess you guess you're right <laughs> what was the hardest scene to do this season uh, well, the kids aside, let's um, <laughs> say um, yeah, those those first two episodes that was incredibly challenging. I was able to do a lot of research prior to, to starting, and I could learn about head injuries. And I, John Coles was very good friends with Dr. James Schumacher, one of the leading brain surgeons in the country, who got on the phone with me anytime I wanted, and I broke down the script line by line with him and just said, would I do this? Would, would he really hit a doctor? I mean, would he scream out of nowhere just for no, what appears to be no apparent reason? He's like, that's exactly what they would do. And then he came to set and actually helped as well. Uh, I'm so thankful to him for, for all that. But it was that, just to make it all as real as I could, you know, um, because nobody half-asses anything on our show, so I wasn't about to be like, oh, a head injury, okay, I'm bummed. <laughs> you know. You just reminded me of that scene from Young Frankenstein where, uh, you know, Igor's <laughs> hump moves from one shoulder one to another. That's you great. didn't do anything like that. No. You know what the hardest scene to watch was? You must uh, know. Yeah. Last episode? Yeah. That was hard on so many levels because here – I can speak freely now, right? Yes, we We gave freely. a spoiler. Okay. Yeah. You know Rachel, who plays Rachel, Rachel Poser, and in – Incredible, incredible young actress and one of the sweetest people you'll ever meet. Like, you know, I took away one of my favorite acting partners. That's That was so much of, you know, just took like away, re took out. removed. <laughs> um, to do those scenes with her was so difficult because 
you know, part of me feels like a bigger brother to her, too, in real life. You know, I just feel like I just want the best for that girl. She's so vulnerable when she's playing Rachel. And the things that I have to do are just so <laughs> despicable. It was, it's so it hard. It was excruciatingly tense yeah. because you know she doesn't pose yeah. a threat. You know that she'll never come back to haunt Frank or the Underwood administration or you. Or She just wants to disappear. She could not be more diminished by what she's been through, by what Doug right. put her through. Yeah. And Doug is so hard, so cold. And then there's that flickering moment of redemption. You see him drive away. She walks down. And then he turns around. Had he talked to Frank? No, no. It's like you said. He knew when she said, you're never going to see me again. And she gave him every bit of proof that he needed to know that I would never see her again. But Gavin still exists. Gavin found her once. You know that he could find her again. It doesn't matter. Something could happen. She could come out. I can't go back to Frank and tell him again that I've taken care of something that I haven't taken care of. If I want to be back where I believe I belong, I have to tie up this loose end. Rachel and I joked about it. She's like, how did you, how did you do it? <laughs> how did you kill me? And I was like, I choked you. And she was like, no, you didn't choke me. It takes eight minutes to kill someone by choking. You, you couldn't do that. And I was like, well, I, I think, it, you know, he's not going to hit you. It's too, that's too hard. Run her over? You know, no, I think he, I think he choked her. But it, it, it's just he knew he had to do it. it. He knew that he couldn't go back without having that done. Either, I guess. <laughs> it, it was, but incredibly, incredibly hard, man. Really tough. Doug's a fascinating, <sighs> magnetic monster. Mm. Yeah, the, the look in your eyes right now. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> she, you, she, she kind of wants to kill me. <laughs> but, but I Doug hated is, that yeah. she didn't get to live. I know. And, and, and in the early draft, she did. Really? Yeah. She, he let her go, and he drove away, and, and knowing that you would never see her again. But, you know, Bo came to me, and he said, what do you think if, and I said, oh, my God, people are going to hate me. I love it. I love it. <laughs> he has to kill her. But it makes sense. The whole arc of the season about, is about getting back for him. It is. So he has to do it. Otherwise, it's a Hollywood ending, isn't Yeah, it? and I said, I told Bo, I said, I, I don't. I don't want to because, like I said, she's one of my favorite acting partners. And I, and people are going to despise this character. <laughs> but it's crazy. They didn't. <laughs> no. I mean, no. there are some people who did, but, but most people are like, yes, he had to. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. People are as horrible as Doug. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> but it is true that you just – you're rooting for them both. I, I think that the, the you know the way the the way that you were feeling when you were talking about it just now it, it's sorry you did can, I scare you no, was no, I menacing you no, <laughs> just the sadness in your eyes for Rachel uh, I think you can really it's that moment when she hears the van you you just see it yeah. on her she did that so brilliantly when she hears it coming up over the hill and she's like oh my god. That son of a bitch. <laughs> just like, I'm dead. And she doesn't, you know, and she just sits there and it's just like, she knows. And she's resigned. And that's, 
that's why that moment I think is so powerful it's because of what she did there. She it's was just brilliantly done. So you'll never guess what I found before oh we came in to do this <laughs> podcast in a blog called The Decider, and I'm going to read you what it says. In 13 episodes, we see a man come full circle and decide after everything he's experienced that the only place he wants to be is by Underwood's side. But Doug is no longer nobody. He's invaluable to Underwood's presidency, something that both Frank and Doug acknowledge for the first time as they're finally seeing eye to eye in the same playing field, ready to take the next step as a team. And boy, Underwood is going to need his help next season. Underwood has a PR disaster on his hands that could lose him re-election, which only the finesse of Doug Stamper can fix. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? I, well, I'm assuming it's he and Claire. I mean, I, that's, my, that's my guess. But you know nothing else, right? No, about season four? No. Nothing. You were under orders not to watch the British, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> David Fincher actually said to me, uh, the audition, he said, before we even started, he said, so have you seen the original? I said, I said, I'm actually, I'm only on episode three or four. And he was like, I don't want you to watch it. That's not the show we're making. And I was like, okay. And Fincher tells you to do something, you do it. <laughs> so he ordered you not to watch the British yeah. series, the original series. Yeah. he said, don't watch it. And you didn't. No. <laughs> there's a bit of, I guess there's a bit of stamper in me. <laughs> this has been such a pleasure. Michael Kelly, thank treat. you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real treat. I'm, I'm so happy to have been here. Thank you. Michael Kelly played Doug Stamper in all three seasons of House of Cards and is headed into the fourth. Bye. Thank you. On House of Cards is produced by Kimmy Regler with help from Claire Tennisgetter and edited by me. Katja Rogers is our executive producer. Jennifer Munson is our engineer. You can subscribe to this podcast and On the Media on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you go to iTunes, leave us a review while you're there. It really helps us out. And follow us on Twitter at On the Media. Next episode on gender politics and campaign plotting. This is a man who believes in the rule of law-ish, the legislative process-ish, the Constitution-ish. Is this the man who should be president?